You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. Alrighty, on today's Fry It Up podcast, played on Coach Mike Krzyzewski's Duke University basketball team for four years. Of that, he played in three Final Four games and one national championship game. And when a person plays for a college, that's competitive basketball. When you play at Division One and at Duke, that's the highest level competitive basketball you can get. His next immediate goal in life is to go from a financial advisor to an investment advisor. And no doubt he'll achieve that based on his past accomplishments. And now we welcome to the mic, the Duke University class of 1990, Robert Bricky. How are you, Robert? I am fabulous, and thank you for having me, man. I certainly appreciate you taking some time to spend some time with me. Of course, and thank you for coming. Um, let's start out by giving out your contact information so people can contact you. Okay, uh, my email address is uh, robert.bricky at lpl.com, robert.bricky at lpl.com. My phone number is 919-896-2389, 919-896-2389. Excellent. And people can contact you for investment uh, questions or about your other social programs that you're involved in, right? Absolutely. All right. It's been four or five years since we last spoke, so we have a lot to talk about. Uh, let's begin. Presently, you're a businessman. Tell us briefly about how you got into your present position, Robert. I, uh, about 2012, I was living in Toronto. I came home to check on my mother and spend two weeks with her, hang out make sure she was okay. And during that time, I realized that she's just not managing her affairs like I think she should. So I was like, maybe she needs some help. And so I decided to move back home, help take care of my mother, uh, just give her a boost and make sure I'm around. In that process, I was talking to my mentor who was a financial advisor. And he said, I think you'd be good in my business. And he made a couple of calls on my on my behalf. And and I ended up going to work for a group called uh, AXA Equitable, and then uh, later on, Lincoln Financial. Uh, so uh, made the transition from coaching to the financial industry. Excellent. You know, what I've noticed is that other former pro athletes have also become financial advisors. What's with that? I think they all see the horror stories of athletes who have reached the pinnacle of their careers and made – uh, exorbitant about some money and ended up broke. Uh, so, you know, it's one thing when you kind of understand some of that side of that business, you know, I've been a basketball player. I've known professionals and guys have made a lot of money. They need somebody that they can trust, not just professionals, everyday people. You know, I have clients that have means and they need somebody that they can trust to help them build a plan and make them sh- make sure that they're, making progress and then things change when you're 37 uh, you've got certain risk tolerance you've got time when you're 67 you need um, you need income and so you've got as every stage of life you've got to be to have somebody that will help you walk along and make sure you're making the proper adjustments excellent now let's we're going to backtrack and then start out when you were a little baby you presently you listed a 60 a six foot five right but right. you were always six foot five you were born small, and you were born on December 26th. You ever feel ripped off? You know, fortunately, 
my mother's birthday was Christmas Day. And so she understood the plight of having a birthday right around Christmas. And so she would always make sure that I didn't get slighted when it came to gifts. Uh, and of course, I had to return the favor. Her birthday was on Christmas Day. Wow. So I had to make sure there was separate gift for birthday as well as Christmas. That had to be good. So you always got Christmas present, and then the next you got your birthday present. Birthday present, yeah. So you never felt ripped off in any sense. No, no, no. And it was a lot easier to have a birthday party because all kids were out of school during that time. So it was easier to get them together. Excellent point. Excellent point. Uh, you were born and raised in uh, Fairfield, North Carolina, right? Correct. Home of the 82nd Airborne. Correct. And in, uh, out of respect for that, I'm wearing my Army shirt right there. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> so when you get to, went to high school, you went to E.E. E. Smith High School, the Golden Bulls, right? Right. Trivia question. What does E.E. E. stand for in E.E. E. Smith High School? Ezra, Ezekiel, or Ezekiel Ezra. It's one of those Smith. Um, noted educator in this community. That's right. You went to actually a kind of a historical black high school and they produced lots of famous people in the end. Certainly. certainly. We have a long, very proud tradi uh, tradition and history, which goes on to this day. Excellent. Um, just for the record, Ezekiel Ezra Smith became a U.S. ambassador, a clergyman, and an educator. So that's a, a pretty uh, respectable name after school. Exactly. Exactly. Now, we also know that Fayetteville is an army town. And just like college uh, towns where kids grow up, they experience certain uniqueness growing up in a college town that most Americans don't see. Right. Same thing with uh, army town. You grew up in Fayetteville. And right. that comes some unique experience. What was it like living in a, and growing up in an army town? Well, being that Fort Bragg is so large, uh, it, the military affects every phase of life around here. And... Um, one of the interesting stories is anytime somebody comes to visit, I live about three miles from Fort Bragg and they have artillery practice a lot of days and I've heard it so much. I don't even hear it anymore. And so when people come to visit, they were like, what are we under attack? I was like, no, 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 no. I said, uh, what are you talking about? He, he said, what is that noise? I said, bombing going. I said, oh, that's Fort Bragg. He said, I, I'm, I'm immune to it because I've been around it so long, but you know, it's it's loud and it shakes your house. And, it, and if you don't know what's going on, I could see why people would think that. But yeah, so the military is just a huge part of everyday life here in Fayetteville. My, of course, my dad was military. And uh, and most people around here are either in the military or tied to the military somehow. And like you mentioned to me years ago when we last met, that freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. And so, I, you know, every time I see a military and restaurant or around town. I'm always thanking guys. Uh, it's a cool story. When my father died, um, they came out and did a 21 gun salute. And I'm thinking these guys, he was a young guy. I'm like, they don't know my dad, but the army code, uh, part of being uh, a soldier. And so it actually brought me to tears. I mean, I really shed a tear during that. Cause I was like, they yeah, could honor a guy. They don't even know, but it meant a lot to me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that they came out to honor your father has such right. a tremendous statement. So right. I appreciate that very much. Um, whenever I see veterans with, wearing this Korean War vet hat, I right. always make an effort to stop by and say thank them for what they've done. Because what right. they did allowed me to be where I am today. Exactly. So, 
exactly. me, you know, I'm, I'm personally touched by it and I really appreciate what they've done. Um, right. In your junior year in high school, you went, you took your team to a state championship game, right? Right. And who, who did you uh, ultimately play and uh, lose to? We played uh, Gastonia Huss and uh, it was one of the weirdest games of my life. Uh, we were a high scoring team and uh, I think the final score was 47 to 40, which is, we averaged about 85 a game, I believe. So uh, that really played to their advantage. Uh, but So we came up a little short that night. So what happened? Well, I got in foul trouble early, and we just never got in the flow. And it's just one of those nights where we just didn't play well, and they played a little better than we did. And so they didn't, I don't think they played as well as they could either. But they played better than we did that night. So they came out on the better end. Yeah, yeah, they got us. But it didn't matter because as far as Robert Brickey goes, you were named all city. Right. Then all county. And then all eastern North Carolina. And first team all state. Those are pretty honorable mention, you know, the titles there. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, I had, uh, I, I earned some, uh, some, some accolades back in the day, uh, um, but, uh, you know, it seems like that was so long ago. But, you know, as you start talking about it, it was, uh, I mean, they were, they were great times. I mean, East Smith was a great place to go to school. We had tremendous fan support. We had tremendous uh, teachers, community support. It was it was a it was a great time. You were uh, actually mentioned a three-time all-conference performer. So you definitely put a stamp in that uh, uh, town. Um, in your senior year, you were named North Carolina Mr. Basketball. Tell us about that. Uh, you know, I was – uh, you, you don't play for recognition. You play for love of the game. And, uh, you know, there were some really quality players in the state that year. Uh, Brian Howard with state, Avi Lester with state. Uh, God, I can't even remember now. But there was, there was, there were eight or ten high-level D1 guys out of the state of North Carolina that year. And uh, I really didn't think I was going to be player of the year. But you know, Lord smiled on me, and we had an opportunity to be recognized as the best player in the state. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we had a great weekend. They, they took us down to Charlotte, photo shoot with the female player of the year, and brought both of our parents down, took us to dinner. It's really nice. So, uh, uh, you know, I just, I, you know, you're bringing up some really good memories that I had thought about in a long time. So that was, uh, that was, that was a good time. Well, actually, you are – a legend at E.E. Smith High School because they list you on Wikipedia as one of the notable alumni. Right. How many people can say that? Uh, I don't know, but, uh, you know, you know, it's weird. Is our, our school has produced a lot of talented uh, people who've gone out and do, done great things in, in this country and in this world. And, you know, just to, you would think, well, we've, we've been around a long time too, so. We've been around since the 1927. Yeah, so that's going on 100 years. How many high schools can say that? So we have a tremendous uh, alumni network, and uh, we've long proud tradition. So uh, you know, we've produced a lot of quality people who impacted our community and other communities in a lot of different ways. Well, you're part of that long proud tradition, Robert, based on what you've done. Because uh, as a notable alumni, you're a legend down there. Right. Now, um, because of your uh, reputation 
you must have been recruited by more than just Duke, right? Yeah, I got I got a lot of attention. Uh, I, it actually got to the point where it was overwhelming. Uh, the recruiting rules were a little different back then in the 80s. And, you know, coaches would be calling the house all the time. You know, I, it got to the point I just didn't want to be home because I didn't want to really deal with it. You know, I wanted to be a kid and have fun and be high school and enjoy my high school years. Uh, and then and my high school coach gave me some great advice. He said, you probably need to go ahead and narrow this down. That way it will take some of that burden off of you. So we did that and that. And I knew I wanted to stay close enough to home so my my parents would have a chance to see me play. I didn't know it'd be Duke at the time. I really thought it'd be Wake Forest, but um, so that was my thought process. And uh, you know, so we once we narrowed it down, it became a lot more bearable. So, what were some of the schools you narrowed down to? Uh, Wake Forest, um, Virginia Tech. Uh, I took a visit to Washington State University. It's a long story. Uh, Kelvin Sampson, who's the coach at University of Houston now, played at Pembroke State University with my brother. He was an assistant at Washington State at the time. So it was kind of a personal connection. And so I took a visit to Washington State. Uh, and I, I, I drove to some local schools that were close enough to drive to. But and Duke did not recruit me Initially, they were recruiting a kid named Stevie Thompson who ended up going to Syracuse. So they didn't start recruiting me until the fall of my senior year. Uh, so my coach pulled me aside and said, hey, listen, you know, I think you ought to take a look. He never he never pointed me in a direction. He said, I think you ought to take a look at this. And he let me make my own decision. So um, when Duke started recruiting me, I took a serious look. and One thing led to another. I ended up being a Blue Devil. So what was the impetus that you chose, uh, you leaned toward Duke in the end? You know what? I really felt Coach K was going to give me freedom to be who I was as a player. Um, he ran that motion offense, which you can do a lot of things within the motion offense. I thought I could be successful doing that. One. Two, uh, great academic institution. Uh Three, it was smaller. I didn't want to go to a very large school. I felt like I would get lost in the crowd. And then four, it was close enough for my parents to come see me play. And then five, the ACC was a tremendous conference, and I wanted to be a part of that high-level basketball. Excellent. So in 1986, you became a student athlete at Duke, and you right. majored in poli-sci. Right. Why poli-sci? Originally, my intent was – uh, before the basketball stuff came along was to go to law school. And uh, my dad used to be involved in law. In fact, if you, if you could see to my right, uh, there's a bunch of books left over from when he was studying law and taking classes. And uh, so I, I, it sparked an interest in me as a, as a young person. And so I thought I was going to go to law school. So I, that's why I majored in political science. No regrets? No, no regrets. I mean, I, you know, I've had a, I've had a good life. I've had I've had a good. I always tell my daughter that she thinks I'm crazy. Uh, I say, hey, look, if it's my time to go today, I've had a good run. I, I don't have anything to complain about. So, uh, but you know, I, I'm going to enjoy the days I have left. <laughs> yeah, we need to, we got to make sure about that. Uh, right. You you were listed as six foot five, two hundred ten pounds, and you play small four, but also center uh -huh. at Duke University, right? Right. 
And in the 80s, I used to see you play, and I used to see you, you know, scrapping on the floor fighting for those loose balls. And you really worked hard. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. You know, my dad was military. My dad was a drill sergeant. So oh. he wanted you to figure out what he was saying before he finished saying it and go ahead and start doing it. So, uh, and then my mother was an educator. So just work ethic. You know, I saw you can get, they got out and went to work every day, taught me things. And my brothers really helped me a lot during that process. They taught me, say, if you want to be good at this game, here's some things you need to do. You got to be able to do A, B, and C. And you got to be able to. So, so give us an example of what your older brothers did to you to get you um, ready. So, we would go, they started taking me to Fort Bragg when I was like seventh grade. Now, I'm probably six foot tall in seventh grade. And I'm, but I'm skinny. And they would say, hey, listen, if you want to be good, you got to be tough and you got to play with better competition than yourself. So they would take me to Fort Bragg and let me play with the, with the soldiers. And I would get my tail kicked every weekend. And I was like, you know, this is really not fun. I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting beat up by military personnel every weekend. And my brother said, don't make a call. You better not cry because I'll kick your tail if you do. So it made me tougher. And I didn't realize I could play until I started playing against guys my own age. I'm used to playing against grown men who have military careers. Uh, but it made me tougher and uh, stronger and uh, more than anything, uh, mentally tough. So your brother practiced what is known as tough love. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> not just at Fort Bragg. I mean, if you played in the backyard, they'd, they'd elbow me and push me and, you know, but – you know, so you got to learn how to play with contact, and it really it, it helped. Excellent. Now, in those four years while you were at Duke, uh, you went to three Final Four games right. in, in 87, 88, and 89. And in 1990, you actually went to play in the National Championship game. Do you remember right. those years? Oh, yeah, those were some good years, man, really good years. Uh, great teammates, great coach, a lot of fun. Yeah, at that time, uh, you guys were known as – Coach K's original high flyers. Right. right. It sounds more like a circus than a basketball team, right? Right. Why did they call you that? Well, because I, I, I like to play above the rim. And uh, Duke was not known for having uh, really athletic players at the time. So maybe I was the first guy under Coach K's realm to be uh, a high flyer. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I got branded that, but. You know, you look now, of course, Coach K has been there almost 40 years. He's had a string of high flyers come through there now. But you're the original high flyer, right? Right. And right. they referred to you as King Dunk because you played above the rim so much. Yeah, and I, and I, I if I got the ball near the bucket, I was going to try to dunk it. There you, know, you go. So. There you go. And my brothers told me to be, you've got to be ultra aggressive. So you've got to really attack the basket if you get a chance. So I, every chance, every time I got a chance, I tried to, I tried to bring the rim down. Excellent. Also, you as a freshman at Duke, you had a unique experience in that you played for the Team USA in FIFA Under-19 World Championship, which was held in Italy. So tell us about that a little bit. Man, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, I got to play with some of the best players, best freshman players in the country. We had an unbelievable squad, and uh, we ended up. And Larry Johnson and Gary Payton. 
right? At least. Got some Gary Payton, a guy named Ron Urey, uh, Scott Wynn, Carolina, uh, Dwayne Shenses with Florida. Oh, God. Uh, I can't even remember the other guys, but we, we had a really good squad. And it was it was good to connect with guys who played in different parts of the country, different conferences. Uh, you know, just hear about life in different places. And uh, so it was, we had we had a tremendous amount of fun and doing tryouts and even when we went over to Europe. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still in touch with a couple of those guys. Who was the coach at the time? Uh, Larry Brown was the coach and he was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. He was uh, very passionate, but very knowledgeable. And uh, he's a really uh, teacher really taught us some, we didn't, you know, of course we didn't have a lot of time to prepare, prepare but you could tell in, in the way he did in that short amount of time, he, he, he really likes to teach the game of basketball. And, you know, had I not played for Coach K, he'd be a guy that I would have loved to have played for. And it didn't bother you that he was a former UNC coach? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Again, I have a lot of respect for the UNC program. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> What was Coach Larry Brown's coaching style? You know, he was a player's coach uh, because he wanted to take your gifts and abilities and fit them together with other guys and allow it to you to play to your strengths. Uh, so, you know, part of that is you got to be able to recognize what guys are good at and what they're not. And then how do I structure things to take advantage of their individual skill sets? So when you look back on your freshman year, what were you thinking at the end of the season? Man, it was uh, – you get through. We had, a, we had a good – I think we ended up winning 20-plus games and made it to the tournament. But, you know, anytime you thrust into a new situation and, and everything around you changes, you got you have some, you got a lot of figuring out to do. You got to well, – how, how, where do I fit in? You know, how, and then how can I be successful? You know, what are the things I need to do? Um, so, you know, you take – a you take an inventory at, at, at the end of the year and say, okay, I have a better idea now. Let me work on some of these things this summer before my sophomore year. So I feel like I'm making progress each and every year after that. Did you feel you were at the right institution at that point? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Duke was good for me. Uh, it was – it challenged me in a lot of ways uh, academically, of course, athletically socially um so it was it was it was really good for me and then, you, and then you make lasting relationships during the college years so it was fun it was challenging and uh, ultimately you know looking back how many guys can say that being a part of where they went to school still benefits them to this day that's that doesn't happen very often so i'm very fortunate in that in that way Absolutely. And also in your sophomore year, you also got individual accolade because you were named all ACC tournament first team. Right. Yeah, we had a, we had a good run that year. We uh, I think we won the tournament that year, ACC tournament. Yep. I think we beat Carolina, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, again, by that time, by the, by the time you get to the end of the ACC tournament, you're seasoned. I mean, you've, you've got almost two full seasons under your belt at that time. So you, you're a little bit more confident in what you're doing. And, you know, you have an idea. Your, your freshman year, it's, everything is going a 1,000 miles an hour because you've got plays and 
offense. We, I never run a motion offense. The way they played defense was a little different. And help side, and ball. you know, it's a lot of things being thrown at you, and you have to be able to uh, react without thinking, uh, and that takes time. You know, it's, it's hard to do it in one season. So, you know, by the time you get to your sophomore year, you're a lot more comfortable. I've always wondered because uh, ACC tournament is known to be tough. Right. And, uh, you know, when you go through the process and you win the tournament, I've always wondered, aren't the players really worn out to play in the NCAA tournament? Or does it help? Yeah, because you figured back then it was Thursday, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three straight games. Uh, uh, selection Sunday was that night. And you were finding out where you were get ready to travel to to play later that week. So it's quick turnaround, ACC tournament, back camp, back to campus, day or two of prep. Then you're on the plane going somewhere to get ready for the first round of the tournament. So, it, it, you know, but, you know, you're young. You, you, you bounce back. Your legs are fresh, you know. I, God, I wish I could <laughs> do that nowadays, man. I, I, I go – if I run uh, – I, I run a few days a week. And if I run too many days, I got to take a day off. Gotcha. In 1990, when you were a senior, you took the team to the national championship. Right. And uh, how was that when you get to the tournament? What's it like, the and national it's, championship it's a, game? It's a major party. Uh, so whatever city, I think my sophomore year we go to – I'm sorry, that year we, uh, it was in uh, – we, uh, we were in Seattle. So not only is the whole city of Seattle – focused on the Final Four. The entire nation is. And uh, so, you know, and you know that you've got a chance to finish your season. You know, at this point, 60 teams are going for the tournament. And there are four left, and you want to be playing on Monday night. Uh, and so you want to get to that last game. So you said, definitely say, I know when I, our season ends tonight because this is the last possible game. Uh, now, it didn't work out in my favor, but still a great experience. And, again, four years flew by. And, you know, we get to play in the championship that Monday night. And now when you get back to campus, basketball's over. you got to start thinking about the next phase of life. And that was, that was tough. So when you uh... – or playing the final game, the national championship game, you realize not only did your uh, season end, but also your college playing career will end. Right. How do you feel? Man, I tell you, people can tell you how fast it will come and go. And you don't realize it until you're sitting there that last night thinking, it is over. And that was tough for me. That was really tough. Uh, you know, I, I was looking forward to the next things, but, you know, four years flies by, and then you, wow, I'm, I'm out here in the real world getting ready for real-world issues and situations. So uh, it, it presented a new set of challenges. A lot of and, uncertainties, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I'm thinking NBA and, they cut the draft that year to, from three rounds, two rounds. I don't get drafted. Now i got to be a free agent and try to work my way up. And so a lot of uncertainty. Plus, I hurt my knee that year, and I'm still not 100% healthy. So it was uh, 
it's one of those things that can make or break you. And if you if you handle it the right way, it'll even if you don't make the NBA, it's going to help you do other great things in life. Gotcha. Uh, philosophical question: What meant more to you in those days, represent the USA national team or uh, representing Duke? I'm going to say that playing for Team USA only because you just don't get an opportunity to represent your country very often. And uh, certainly no slight to Duke University. That was an amazing institution and program. But, you know, I had, I had one shot to represent my country, and uh, that, was a, that was a really great time, special time for me. Well, I thank you for the representing you well. Uh, do you see any difference in attitude terms of present-day players versus the back in your days? Yeah, I think part of the problem is the, the development of uh, uh, the internet and social media. Kids today get recognized at such early ages and they can become uh, internet legends uh, when, they're, when they're in middle school. So, and that can be detrimental to some kids. I mean, now, you know, if you let that go to your head, you can buy into all the hype and never make it. Uh, so so how, did work, how, how did that work out for you in terms of your values as hype and all those things? Anybody influence you in your thought process? See, when I was in school, you know, we didn't have social media. And, you know, you, the best you could do was make the newspaper. Uh, so it's just a different time. And, and AAU was not huge at that time. We had, we had no programs in Fayetteville. We had, I think the closest was Charlotte. And uh, so AAU wasn't that big then. And all these summer tournaments. And so, all, you know, the evolution of the game has brought on some, some, some good things. And at the same time, some things I don't think are so good, so great for young people and the game. Did your high school coach influence you in any way in terms of your value as a player? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was an amazing coach and man, and uh, he he passed uh, two or three years ago, and I had a chance to speak at his funeral, which I thought felt was a real honor. But he uh, he instilled a lot of things in me, and one of which was be humble, keep your nose clean, and uh, he he said this a million times: praise is like poison; if you swallow it, it will kill you. So he said, always be humble. Uh, always be willing to listen. Always be willing to work. And uh, and if you do the right things, people will help you, and you will find yourself in good in good places in life. All right. Um, let's talk about something called one and done. You tell us yep. what one and done is, and then what your thought on that is. One and done is the evolution of the game of basketball to the point where college uh, high school kids will go to college for one year, uh, based on the rules set by NCAA and NBA. And then after that one year, they will enter their names into the draft to try to pursue their careers as a professional. Excellent. What's your thought on that? Two sides to every coin. I, I see both sides. Everybody that laces them up at a high level or a medium level wants to be in the NBA. Uh, and so if you have a chance to make your dream come true after one year, I cannot argue with a young man. Uh, especially when it becomes from an economically disadvantaged situation, he's got a chance to help his family. 
I cannot argue with that young man. Gotcha. I think the downside of it is you're 19. You still need to develop mentally, physically. You know, you don't know the trappings of this world. You don't know. You're not used to having access to cash and people on a grand scale. And that could be the downfall for a lot of folks. Got I'm going to take you back to 1988, January 21st, 1988. Uh, you're playing at Chapel Hill. Duke is ranked number nine in the nation, and UNC is number two in the nation. Score, Duke was 69, UNC was 70. And there were four seconds left in the game. And when Carolina threw the ball in, blah, blah, moved around, and then Jeff Lebo got the ball, and he took the winning shot. Except there was a problem. What happened? I got switched out on Jeff. I think – I'm not sure who was guarding. I think Phil Henderson was. And it was a screen, and we had to switch. And I knew by the time Jeff had the ball, he, he had a limited. I don't think he even had time to get one dribble in the shot. So I knew he had to catch and shoot. And I was, I, I was close enough where I thought I could affect the shot, if not block it. So I was able to re, uh, get a finger on it. It fell a little bit short. We get the rebound. We win. And uh, – <laughs> But the ironic thing about that story is it was on – I woke up last week about 4 in the morning. It's on ESPN. And then I'll give you the story about Lebo. I mean, I think I'm in Chicago one day at a restaurant. I'm about to eat. It, I'm in the airport. And uh waitress comes over with a beer. And I'm thinking, I haven't even ordered yet. He said, the gentleman over there sent you a beer. And said, that was a lucky block at the end of the game. I look over, it's Jeff Lebo. So <laughs> – and we've laughed about that over the years uh, a couple of times. Well, I remember during the 80s, every time Carolina played Duke on Sunday afternoons, Carolina, Carolina would lose nine out of ten games. So it was not one of my favorite days. Right. Uh, what was it like playing in Dindo back then? Man, again, Dindo at the time was relatively new. And that was – you didn't have large campus facilities like that. I mean, it, it seated like 25,000 people. That was uh, almost unheard of in the 80s. And so, you know, you walk in there and everybody's got on the wrong color blue, and band and the fans and the noise. And, and it's a big place. So, you know, it, your depth perception is different in a large building. It's like you're outside almost. And so it takes some uh, getting used to uh, some adjustments to get used to uh, the size of the facility. But it's a great place. Named after a great coach. Uh, you play for Coach K, and of course, you can't talk about Duke basketball without Coach K. Um, right. What was he like as a coach and as a person? Well, man, he was amazing on, on both fronts. Uh, amazing man, uh, amazing coach. And how does he prepare? For example, you know. Oh man, he he is the most prepared coach I've ever known. Uh, one of my friends was his neighbor in college. Mm -hmm. And his bathroom was on the same side of the house as Coach K's film room. And he said that many nights he'd get up at 3, 4 in the morning to go to the bathroom. And he'd see the flicker of the film. This is how he described it. Coming from Coach K's film room, he's watching film at 3, 4 in the morning. This is in the 80s. And so fast forward, I've had a chance to be around him a few times between the Olympics. And, you know, you, you know, I know some of his staff and, I'll say, hey, or ask his oldest daughter, Debbie, who was at Duke with me. I said, is your dad still preparing like a maniac? She said, yeah. She said, I, I, I thought by now he would delegate 
more of that, but he, they, she said, no, he, he's still committed to preparation as ever. And that's why he's successful. And he's ultimately prepared for whatever happens. And then I'll even say he's a better human than he's a coach, better person than he is a coach. Just an amazing individual uh, who's done a lot of great things for people. You'll never know. And he doesn't want people to know. And uh, to me, that's a mark of a true humanitarian is when you give and don't want your name attached to it. You've confirmed everything I always thought about Coach uh, K. And even right. though I wear the other blue, I always right. felt and have respect for the uh, Duke program because of him and also the players that he's uh, you know, mentored over the years. And right. I think he does exemplify what the West Point stands for, which is duty on right. country. And uh, exactly. it, it worries me, even as a, a non-Dukey, when he retires, when he steps aside. I, right. It concerns me what Duke's going to do uh, you know, after he does step aside. Right. Um, do you have any thoughts on who should, might take his place when he does retire? That's a you tough know, question. We, we have all pondered that question. Uh, and, uh, your guess is as good as mine, but I would say maybe Johnny Dawkins, Jeff Capel. I don't think Quinn Snyder is going to leave the pros, but his name is going to be brought up. Um, maybe oh. Wojo, Steve Wojciechowski, if he gets a little bit more experience as a head coach, he's doing a good job at Marquette. I'd say one of those guys. So it's going to be kept in the family? I would assume so. But again, your guess is as good as mine. I don't have any inside knowledge to say one way or the other. I mean, whoever replaces Coach K has a big vacuum to fill. And I'm really sympathetic towards that person because that's a big, big shoe to fill, right? Okay, you remember when, when Dean Smith left oh. and, and Guthridge took over for a little bit and – Guthridge was like, yeah, I want to do this for a little bit, but I don't want to do this very long. And, uh, and, then, and then they had trouble uh, finding somebody to come back that was in the Carolina family. So, uh, you know, at some point, the, the tree gets a little thin. And so I think, I think they'll try to keep it in the family. Excellent. Excellent. And we will be right back after this important message. All right. Welcome back to Fry It Up with Robert Brickett today. And we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, at this point, Duke is at the national championship game in 1990. Right. And we want to see how, what it feels like to be at the national championship game with marquee name like Duke and the coach and the players. So, Robert, share with us the moment, what, it, what it's like to go to the game and then throughout the game, how, what it feels like. Well, the first thing is, this is a culmination of four years on the line. You know – the last game, this is going to be the last game in your college career. And, you, of course, you want to go out with a bang. We have a chance to win the national championship, kind of ride off in the sunset. Uh, so it's, it's, But it's a big deal because, one, we've been in the Final Four two years, so we lost in the uh, quarterfinals the previous two year seasons. Now we've made it to the big dance. Uh, you know, we feel like we're prepared. We know UNLV is a, got a monster squad, but – you know, if if we can we can stick to what got got us there, and we could limit them to some of their because they love to run. God Almighty, they get the ball off the backboard, they were gone. So if we could limit some of their transition buckets, then we then we we might be in this thing. And then, you know who and then who knows we'll win it down the stretch. 
Uh, it didn't work out that way, but uh, you know, nonetheless, it was a great experience. You know, uh, it was tough because that's your last game. And it's just like we talked about retirement earlier, it gets here a lot faster than you imagine. The end of four years got there a lot quicker than I would have imagined. So, you know, I was uh, I was really down after the game, one that we lost, and then two, that my college career was over. Uh, you know, I think we had a good run and all that, but, you know, the, for that to come to an end was tough. But then you got to get ready for the next thing in life. So, get knocked down here, you got to get up and, and, and dust yourself off and keep it moving. So, but it was – Great experience, Coach K did a phenomenal job that entire year. Well, all, all years, but that entire year. And that's great teammates. Uh, you know, that's that's one of the things you miss is being in the battle with guys for you know with a common purpose. So, you know, it's when you get out in the re, you know, real world that you don't have the highs and lows like you do in athletics. Because what what you do is celebrate it with a lot of people as well as when you things didn't go so well, people mourn with you. So, uh, you don't, you know, you can yell and scream and high five and do all those things. You can't do that in the corporate setting. Uh, they may call security on you. So we'll, uh, but, but it was a great experience. And, uh, you know, looking back, you know, sometimes I, I reminisce and, uh, you know, it was, uh, an exceptional run, exceptional coach, great teammates, great institution, so uh, it's one of the highlights of my life. Excellent. And you also served as uh, one of the captains of that team. So that was an honor. Great. Oh, yeah, yeah. We know. And one of the things as captain is, you, of course, you got to be accountable. but I, And you got to hold other people accountable. But you want to do it when they have fun. And I, I would always say, if you're not having fun, go do something else. And that, and that applies to anything in life. If you're not enjoying what you do, you're not enjoying the process, find something else to do. So. You know, we try to keep it light. Um, we we knew what we needed to do. To do, we knew what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, well, let's go do that. Uh, but let's have fun while we're doing it. Now, you're one of the few players where you uh, not only play at a high caliber school, but also you also represented the USA in right. one of those international games. Uh, what meant more to you between uh, representing the USA or playing for Duke? That's tough. That's a great question. Um, There's nothing like playing for your country, man. Uh, you know, it's you, you don't get a chance to represent the USA very often. So, uh, not to say Duke is a slouch or um, I don't think any lesser of Duke, but you know, to just be able to represent your country—that's that's been a once in a lifetime thing for me. So, I'm going to say playing for Team USA. I like the uh, reasoning there. Um, when you think about your playing days and when you think about the players today, do you see any difference in attitude? Um, in some ways, yes. Uh, I think kids are babied a little bit today. I mean, they, they, they identify you at a young age now. So you might be an eighth grader and you might be a YouTube legend in the eighth grade. And so you, you get notoriety on a large scale at a young age and people cater to you along the way. And not to say you, you're not good or you haven't paid your dues, but that all that attention can be detrimental in some ways. So I think 
players because social media and the way kids can get exposure now, I think it's great because it gives them opportunity, but I think there's a, there's a downside to that as well. Gotcha. Now, when you're playing, you're in the old days, um, and when, as I saw you guys play, there was no such thing as one and done. Right. And before you uh, tell me your uh, philosophy on that, why don't you tell us what one and done is now for the uh, listeners? If, yeah, one and done means a, a high school player is going to go to college for one year, and then he's going to enter his name into the draft to, to try to hopefully move on to the NBA. So what is your thought on the uh, one and done? Like when you were playing, you the fans actually got to know the players because right. they played for four years and there's a relationship going back and forth. You right. knew who they were. Right. This, these days, you play for one year, it's like, uh, okay, he's gone. Right. So what is your thought on one and done as terms of uh, overall program? Well, I, I understand the concept. Maybe if the situation were different when I was in school, maybe that's something I would have done if I'd had the opportunity. Because every everybody plays to try to get to the next level. And they can get there sooner now. I think the downside of that is they're not as mature. They're not as mental, mentally. They're not as mature physically. They're not as developed, their skill level of the game is not developed because they don't, they haven't learned how to play. Especially if you came from a high school where you were just better, you didn't learn, you didn't have to learn how to play. And then you spend one year in college, you get a little bit of that, but you don't get four years of experience to learn a system and learn positioning and uh, rotations and those kinds of things. And so when they move to the next level, it still takes them a couple of years to really develop. Like, so I love uh, Jason Tatum, who's a Duke graduate. And I knew he was going to be a, a really good pro. And, and you look, I think this is his third year. He's really, he's really gotten it now. Like he, he, he was always an exceptional talent, but now he can put uh, some maturity with his skill level and knowledge of the game and comfort level. Because, you know, when you're a rookie, just like you starting over again, and then, so you're figuring your way out, and, and you gotta you gotta get through some tough times. But now he's a third year guy, and he's really a good player, an exceptional player. So I, I see both sides of that coin. I don't know which I fall on some days, but I mean, I can't I can't blame a young man because he he puts himself in position to help he and his family for a long time. You feel like you missed out on that when uh, had you had the opportunity? Um. No, uh, I needed to, you know, again, I was a freshman. I needed to do some growing up. I needed to do, get better mentally and physically and learn some things. So, you know, I, I wouldn't have been ready, and it probably would have hurt me. All right. Um, you can't talk about Duke basketball without talking about Coach Mike Krzyzewski. Right. What was he like as a coach back then when he was coaching you? Uh, again, when you go through the process, you get some things. Looking back, you realize the bigger picture. He was, he is the most prepared coach in America. I mean, he is going to be prepared. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. His neighbor was a friend of mine, and 
he said a lot of nights he'd get up, maybe go to the restroom, two, three in the morning. And he said his bathroom was on the side of the house that faced Coach K's film room. Now, this is 80s, where they had, when you had to thread the film projector. So this is not VH, DVD or VHS. This is that old school reel-to-reel machine. And he said there were a lot of nights he'd see the flicker of the machine in the light from his window as I'm going to the bathroom at three or four in the morning. And he said, so, you know, I didn't understand the work he put in to be great. Uh, and, you know, so he was, and again, like my high school coach was a great example, taught you life lessons. Coach K did the same thing. Now, maybe he wasn't overly as vocal about it, but he was a, an example of all those things, you know, how to handle situations, how to handle yourself and your family. And so, you know, I learned a lot of great life lessons for him. And even that today when I have to prepare for certain things, I, I'll say, you know, how would Coach K do this? You know, how would he be prepared for this scenario? So, uh, you know, and then he, he cared, he cares about, but he's very loyal to his players, current and former. And that's, that speaks volumes about who he is. And, and, you know, I don't say this about a lot of people. He's a better human than he is coach. And that's saying a lot because he is an exceptional coach. Excellent. Excellent. So he's obviously more than just a coach, but a mentor and uh, perhaps a father figure, right? Right. Exactly. I remember when coach K came into ACC, it was like 1981 or 82 around there. And uh, I'm sure like, everybody else, including you, you know, we've grown over the years, right? Right. Uh, when he came in like 82 or 81 and you played for him, he was only in the league at Duke for like three, four years. Right. Since then, what would you say uh, is different about him presently than he was back in the early 80s that you observed? Well, when we were in school, he really bought into the Bobby Knight philosophy. So we ran that motion offense uh, man-to-man defense, we hard. I don't know if we we hardly ever played zone. Uh, and I think because of his international and Olympic and international uh, USA basketball experiences, he began to evolve, and so he began to run more offensively, more pro-oriented sets, a lot of spacing, a lot of movement, more concepts than an actual offense. And uh, and I, so, and I think every great coach, if you're going to have any longevity, you have to evolve as the game changes and as per young people change and their skill levels change. And, and so he's done a good job of keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. And, and uh, but he, it's like, it's like you and I, it's times change. We have to, we have to evolve or we die. Like it. We, I was having this conversation the other day. How many things in your lifetime have you seen come and go? Uh, so I, I rented a DVD the other night. Now, when's the last time you rented a DVD? That's right. <laughs> so I was like, wow, I didn't realize they even still had uh, red box machines. But, you know, before that, it was Blockbuster. That was the big deal. And, you know, we saw uh, uh, 8-track to cassette tape to DVD. All of those are gone now. Uh, so you have to either evolve with the times or you die. And so he's done an exceptional job of evolving with the times to still may remain relevant and really good. This is one man's opinion, but uh, 
to be a legendary coach, it's not just about wins and losses. Right. And obviously, Coach K has won more than he's ever lost. Right. But uh, it seems to me that his legacy ultimately will be the number of coaches that he has produced over the years. Right. What is your thought on that? Well, every co- I don't know if there's something you set out to achieve, but every coach wants to know they're good enough and have passed on the knowledge and the wisdom of the and the love of the game to his players who eventually become coaches. And, you know, when you're good, I don't care what your chosen profession is, when you're good and you're around people, you should teach and reach other people. And so it's like your parents. My parents are gone, but they're still alive because they're there are many things I do on a daily basis, sayings my mom or dad said or things that they did or the way they did things, the way they handled things. So every coach, every good professional, actor, coach, teacher, uh, doctor should be, people should want to emulate them. That's right. That's right. I'm going to take you back memory lane and I'm going to okay. see if you can remember uh, your sophomore year. January 21st, 1988, in Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. in Dean Dome. That year, Duke was ranked number nine, mm-hmm. and UNC was ranked number two. Score was Duke 69, UNC 70, with four seconds left. And then it was UNC's ball. They threw it in, went around back and forth, and then Jeff Lebo took yep. that shot to win. But instead, there was a guy named Robert Bricky who blocked the shot, and Duke got the ball, and they won. Right. Remember that? Oh, you know what's funny? That game was on TV last week. <laughs> I wake up about 4 in the morning, and it's right at the end of the game. So I get to watch this segment. Tell and, us, man, what was going on in your mind at the time? Well, in fact, Lebo was not my – if you go back to the tape, Lebo, I was not guarding Lebo. Instead of screening, we ended up having to switch – and I knew Jeff was going to shoot it because he didn't have time to take a dribble. He had to take, he had to catch and, and, and get the shot off. So I was like, I'm close enough. I think I can, I didn't know if I could block it, but I thought I could at least make him think about it, make him, maybe make him shoot it short. But I was lucky enough to get a finger on it. Now, here's a funny story behind that. I'm in the airport. I think I'm in Chicago 10, 15 years later. Waitress comes over. I'm sitting at a restaurant. I'm about to order food. Waitress comes over and said, uh, that gentleman over there bought you a beer. <laughs> I said, well, who is that? I look, it's Jeff Lebo. <laughs> he told the waitress to tell me that was the lucky block. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, we've had a lot of fun with that over the years and when, I, when I get to see Jeff. I tell you, Jeff had an eagle eye. and was a sharpshooter. So oh, yeah. it could have gone in, but... You blocked the shot. And this is another example of what I said earlier, which is that on Sunday afternoons on NBC TV, whenever UNC plays Duke, somehow Duke pulls it out. Right. And that that day was you. Uh, What was it like playing in Dean Dome as a Dukie? Man, I tell you, uh, in fact, the Dean Dome was relatively new when, when we were in school. So, you know, we really never seen anything like that. Nobody in the conference had an arena like that so it's a big deal and uh you know you go in there and there's twenty five thousand folks with the wrong color blue on 
they're yelling and screaming. And, you know, again, it, it, the rivalry's been hyped up because generally we were both were ranked in either top 10 or top 15. So it's always a high level competition game and uh, a rivalry and all that. And again, I, and I knew a lot of their players because I hung out with some of their guys, uh, Rick Fox and King Rice, Steve Bucknell and uh, Scott Williams. Scott Williams and I played on that, that junior world team. Uh, so, you know, and I knew those guys. So, I would, ha- you know, so during the, when we weren't playing each other, we were cool. But, you know, when the game time comes, we were ready to kill each other. But that's, that's the nature of the beast. I understand. Uh, I'm going to ask you one philosophical question about college uh, programs, and then we're going to move on to uh, post-college, okay? Okay. What's your thoughts on college athletes being paid or about to be paid, potentially being paid? I think that's a slippery slope. Uh, I think there's some ways to manage it because uh, when there's a billion dollars on the line, there's going to be corruption. And so you can't set up the system to facilitate corruption. Uh, So I I get it. A lot of these kids come from areas where they're socioeconomically disadvantaged. You know, there's some ways I think you can manage it where you can incentivize some things, maybe not cash, but, you know, if, you know, I need to keep a cell phone. Well, how am I going to pay for a cell phone if I can't work? It's not an expensive proposition, but maybe you figure out a way you can get the kid's cell phone. I want to take my girlfriend to the cafeteria to eat, you know. I think there's some ways you can do it and to make it better without actually having to physically pay players. And on the back end, you incentivize graduation. So maybe as a freshman, you put money into a fund or an annuity of some sort that's going to grow. If you don't, if you make the pros, you don't get any of the money. If you don't make the pros and you graduate, you get a piece to help you get started. Well, you were there, so your perspective is uh, worth knowing. Uh, right. In your senior year, you hurt your knee, which right. kind of messed up your life uh, plan, I guess. Talk about right. that a little bit. That was frustrating because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm building my way to an NBA career, and then I, uh, it was middle of the season. Uh, I hurt my knee, and I had to miss a number of games, and then end up with having to wear a brace. Didn't have to have surgery. Uh, I partially tore my MCL, so just a lot of rehab, but it was frustrating because now I'm limited athletically at a time where I've only got a few games left in my college career, so I need to be able to shine to, to you know, make sure the scouts know I'm still around and get ready for the upcoming draft, so that, that was frustrating, and that really did hurt me in the short run because it took a long time to, to really – felt like I got back to myself. Now, as a player, you get hurt and you're looking at the draft and eventually you realize because of your physical condition, things may not work out. Right. When did that realization hit you? And what were your thoughts on that? Well, my senior year was a year that they cut the draft from three rounds to two rounds. So I probably would have been a third round pick, but they only had two rounds that year. So now you got to go to free agent route. Uh, which is which is a hard road to you know to to climb because still I'm really still not a hundred percent 
by the time that summer rolls around and I've got to go to camp, I've got to, you know, still try to impress people. So it was tough. And I was like, you know what, maybe I won't make it. But uh, so I, you know, tried to rehab and get, I didn't get drafted, tried out the Hornets. I was the last guy cut from the Hornets. So I was like, well, I'm close. I got to keep working and keep working. Then I hurt my knee again. I was playing down in Mexico. So I was like, well, maybe it's not in the cards for me. And that was hard because you, know, you put all your eggs in one basket. And that, if that does not work out, what, what's, what's the next phase? I, I, hadn't, I, didn't, I didn't work on the plan B. Right. I, I got to give this all I got. Uh, and just, you know, so that was the hard part is trying to figure out what the next step would be. I understand. Now, eventually, uh, with that chapter closed, and I imagine through Coach K's connection, you became an assistant coach at United States Military Academy at West Point. Correct. Okay. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. Now, we know that Coach K was at one time an assistant coach under Bobby Knight at the Military Academy, and he coached there, right? right. Um, later on, Bobby Knight goes to Indiana, and you know, he becomes a legend in his own right. You, I imagine, got recommended to go to West Point, mm-hmm. and while you were there, um, did you understand that culture better because you grew up in a military, military town as a young child and also the fact that your father was in the Army? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think my dad retired when I was maybe 11, 10 or 11. And so, you know, I got a taste of military life again. Fort Bragg was easily accessible before 9-11. So you could, you were on and off and you, you did a lot of things at Fort Bragg. So it did help me understand military life. And you were right. Actually, Coach K played with a guy named Pat Harris, who was the head coach at West Point at the time. And that was the connection. That's how I ended up getting there. So, um, you know, and again, and, w- and when I got there, I had an even greater appreciation for the military because now you've got young people who have decided to come to West Point and to make uh, military a, at least a five-year commitment coming out. So, uh, and we had some great kids, man. We, uh, I, I really enjoyed my time there because everybody was so respectful and, and honorable and they all lived by the code, uh, which, which was great. I thought it was great. And we had some great uh, personnel on campus. So it was, it was a really good experience. So beyond, I mean, typical coach would just see players as players and, and nothing more than that. But these uh, cadets that you were coaching had the fortunate, you know, fortunate ability to coach they were more than players, right? I mean, they were future officers of our country. Oh, yeah. They're future military leaders. And if you look historically, West Point p- puts out a lot of top-level military commanders. Uh, so if, you go, if you're going to make it a career, it's, it's the place to start if you, if you can get in. And, uh, and they really – you know, one thing I, I loved about it, I got to know some of the alumni during some of the events. And, man, they really have a great bond. Uh, and they really try to help each other. And it's a great network. So that was one of our uh, selling points in trying to recruit young men is, you know, listen, if you, first of all, I'm telling the parent, first of all, he's going to have a job. And then two, he's going to be a West Point graduate. That's going to carry a lot of weight. And uh, so, you know, recruiting there was difficult, but, you know, those that got it really got it and they went on to do great things. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, 
they're called ring knockers, you know, West yeah. Point yeah. Association. So they do help each other. Yeah. What one lesson did you learn as the assistant coach being at West Point that you carried on? Well, uh, Coach Harris was, uh, taught me a lot of great things about being an assistant coach. Preparation being the first thing. So if I had to do a scouting report, you have to put together video clips, maybe a 10-minute segment on the opposing team, strengths and weaknesses, personnel, et cetera. Then you have to come and practice for a day or two and take the team through if we're playing uh, Cornell. What kind of sets do they run? There's zone defense. They're out of back. You got to take them through all that. But he wanted you to do it from memory. So you had to walk into practice. I had to know eight or nine guys by name, number, what they were good at. I had to know their plays, offenses, defenses, all in my head. Now, you got to think, we're playing Cornell today. Maybe there's a game in between. And I've got to do another scout report next week. So I've got to get all this in my head, be able to explain it to our team with no notes, walk them through it, no notes. All at the same time, I'm already preparing for we play Bucknell next week. I got to start getting taped together. I mean, so it was a nonstop process. And some, now some, sometimes you're on the road. We might be, I might be recruiting in South Carolina or we've got a game in Jersey. And so it was a lot of moving pieces to try to get all your scouting reports together as well as stay on top of recruiting because you can't recruit six kids at Westwood. You got to recruit 600 and let the numbers dwindle until you, you, you'll get through a lot of no's before you get to some yeses. So it was, it was a great way. It was hard because it was, it was just a lot of moving pieces. So it, when I left West Point, it was actually easier because I, I got used to the way Coach Harris did things. And, it, and actually, I understood it later. When you walk in and you constantly referring to notes, it, it is not the same as you coming in and having it in your head and walking through. It just the optics are different, and uh, so it helped me to become a better coach once I left West Point. That was a rude awakening uh, from being a player to becoming a coach, isn't it? it? Oh yeah, it's man, it's that's a, you're on the phone every night, all night when you get done with your work day, because I got to call thirty five kids a night. And, you know, and I missed two. And then I'm on the phone with one. Somebody calls me back. And then somebody's parent calls me. I mean, it's, so it's a, it's a lot of moving pieces. But it, it, was, it was a good experience. So. Is that something that you wanted to pursue, knowing that at that point? You know what? Again, I think being around the game, having a love for the game. And I think my uh, natural inclination is, is a teacher. Uh, my mother was an educator. So, uh I wanted, and I still love the game, and I wanted to be able to teach the game. So that, I didn't want to be a coach right away, but as I spent a few years doing some other things, and I was like, you know what, I think I really like to coach. And so I still do a little bit of coaching, a little bit of training here and there, because I love kids, and I love teaching the game. After you left West Point in 2002 to 2004, you became an assistant to SMU, Southern Methodist University, right? Yeah. Now, the basketball culture coming from West Point slash Army to a cowboy country, right. University Park, 
Were there any noticeable differences in terms of culture and attitude of the players? Oh, man. It was, a, it was night and day. It was uh, one, uh, West Point's tough school to get into. So is SMU. Academic standards are high. Uh, but you don't, have, you don't have a military component. So you can recruit kids. The, the main thing at that point is if they're good enough, are they going to be able to do the work academically? So that was a challenge there, but it was uh, it was night and day, man. It was West Point. I mean, uh, SMU was a uh, well-to-do upscale school, right right off University Park, upscale neighborhoods, close to downtown. So it's a great area. It's easy to recruit there because it, Dallas is a phenomenal city. So you have Dallas and all the things that that brings. And, you know, great for young people because there's a lot of options, a lot of things to do, a lot of places to go, as opposed to West Point, a military-based, small, really, really small setting. Even though you're 50 minutes to an hour from the city, you don't have time to get to New York City. And then, second of all, it's very expensive to go hang out for a night in New York City. So yeah, it was it was a re- huge differences between the cultures at both schools, as well as the types of kids you could recruit. What was one uh, coaching lesson that you've walked away with after you left SMU? Uh, you know what? You, you've got to treat your players very well. Uh, you, you've got to get to know, not only, if, if I'm going to recruit a player, i got to know his parents, his girlfriend, his coach, his AAU coach, aunts and uncles, you, you, no, no telling who you might need to know. And if you treat them well during the process, it will come back because there's a lot of talent in Dallas. So you don't have to really recruit outside of Dallas very much. But your reputation has to be pristine. If it's so, people will help you. If not, that works against you. How about that? So relationship is something that you begin to understand is very important as much as, as X's and O's. Exactly. Exactly. If a kid has a great experience, he's going to tell other people. And that's going to open up the doors to some other recruits. Now, you finally get a break in terms of the step, and you get to be head coach right. at JMU, James Madison University in Virginia, right? Actually, I was head coach. I was assistant coach there. I was doing oh, the show. Okay. Southern University. Yes. Yeah. When you went to J- JMU, what was that like uh, from Dallas, Southwest, you know, the United States into the mountains of Virginia? A lot different. So again, it's a co- it's a college town, very small, almost rural. Uh, a lot of Mennonites out in the uh, in the area on the outskirts. So a tough place to recruit because. Everything has to be uh, surrounding campus life. There's not much to do once you got out outside of campus. So it was a difficult place for me because there was nothing for me to do personally. I'm two hours from Richmond and two hours from DC. And at the end of the day, I don't know if I have four, two hours drive, hang out, two hour drive. I don't. So it was it was a challenge, but it was it made it tougher to recruit kids now. So. If a kid was going to be recruited by James Madison and George Washington, well, George Washington got a lot of things going on in the immediate vicinity. So that was one of the things that came into play. Uh, uh, we may have this may be the last question on this segment. It's incredible okay. how, how fast time flies. 
Uh, after your uh, JMU experience, you got offered head coaching job right. at uh, Shaw University in Raleigh. Right. When you heard that opportunity come by, what are some immediate thoughts that you have had? Well, first thing I needed to do was call some people I knew and trusted in the basketball community to ask them about this opportunity because you don't want to go somewhere to die. <laughs> You know, you want that to be a springboard to other opportunities. So um, I consulted with several people. And matter of fact, uh, I asked some of the Duke staff. Uh, I can't remember who was on. I know uh, was, I can't remember if Johnny Dawkins was on staff at the time, but I asked a bunch of folks, and they said, "Hey, listen, uh, you get to be a head coach. Nobody can take that away from you. So you can always go back to being an assistant, but." That, that would, if you do a good job, that'll put you in position to get other head coaching jobs. And we had, uh, we didn't have very good three year period. We uh, got, I really had a great class my third year at Shaw. And man, the injury bug just decimated us. I mean, by the time we got to Christmas, we were down seven players. So we, could, we couldn't even practice. We didn't have enough people to practice. So we hobbled through that season. But but it taught me a lot of life lessons, so I learned from it. I think I got better. Now, you know, head coach, is a, head coach title is a significant one, so you realize the implication of what, you, what you're trying to do, right? Certainly, yeah. You know, you want every, every coach's dream is to be a head coach. Uh, and, you know, hopefully that will be a long stretch of being a head coach. So, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's a huge learning curve. It's a huge learning curve. Everybody thinks they're ready, but yeah, it's, it's a lot more involved than what you think is going to happen. But, you know, not overwhelming, but just it's just a, it's a lot of spinning plates, and you got to keep those plates spinning. Okay. Um, there's one aspect about being uh, at Shaw as the head coach, and that is that Shaw University is what is known as HBCU. Tell us something about that, please. Well, HBCU is a historically black colleges and universities, um, of course, founded during a time where African-Americans couldn't attend other institutions. And so with the help of various folks, HBUs began to develop around the nation. And they have a strong history and a long history and a lot of tradition. Uh, so and I've had a chance to work at uh, three HBCUs and uh, enjoyed my experiences at, at each, each one of them. Now, um Shaw being HBCU institution, um, that means that predominantly the majority of the students are African-American. Correct. There's a certain unique uh, cultural aspects to the institution. Right. How does that impact a coaching uh, staff? Well, I think, I think the feel on an HBCU campus is just different. It's like going to school and your aunts and uncles are the, are the personnel and the faculty. They really care about kids. And sometimes it's nice to know somebody understands where you come from. So my time at Duke was a little different because there, you know, there are times I'm the only minority in a class or in a situation. And I'm like, nobody understands where I come from in these certain scenarios. Uh, so I think a lot of kids appreciate that on HBCU campuses that they understand where they come from and they, and they really care about those kids like they're their own family. 
So there are things that you don't need to say. It's just they, they understand one another, right? Exactly, exactly. You don't need to talk about it. No, I mean, uh, just like any group, there's things inherent or innate in that group that that group is going to understand. And, you know, it's, 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 you don't have to have a lot of conversation about it. Gotcha. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Continue with that thought. What was the biggest lesson you walked away with when you left as the head coach at Shaw and went back to your former institution? Well, I think once you've been a head coach and you go back to being an assistant coach, you're a better assistant coach because your perspective is is bigger. Uh, When you're a head coach, you're responsible for the entire program. You got to think about the entirety of the program. And now that I've been a head coach and I can go back to being an assistant, I'm still thinking about the, the bigger picture. So it allows you to uh, think on a level that's going to help this head coach more because I'm going to anticipate things in the way of thinking as a head coach that's going to, the way my head coach is going to think about doing things. So I'm, I'm, anticipating helping eliminate some issues because I'm already thinking about the bigger picture. So it really made you appreciate Coach K's position, right? Oh, oh, absolutely, man. I tell you, when you, you know, doing it at his level, there's so many things that, and people that are pulling on you and trying to pull you in different directions. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to run a basketball program, but he's got the Emily Krzyzewski Center. He's involved with the business school and he's USA basketball. He's got all these other things, not to mention your family, your kids and grandkids. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a balancing act. that's hard to pull off by a lot of people. There's only so much hours in a day, right? Correct. Correct. Now in 2008, uh, you returned to Duke and you were uh, employed as assistant director of basketball operations. So that was sort of like a homecoming for you. Correct. So when you were returning back to Duke campus on the management side now, after playing on the court uh, for four years, 22 years later, right. how do you feel? I feel good. One, it's, uh, it's familiar. So it's not like I have to get used to a whole new surrounding, set of surroundings. Uh, and then two, uh, Coach McCauley, Joanne McCauley was the head coach. Uh, on the women's side, and she she did a great job, and she allowed me to some freedom and flexibility to try to help. So it was uh, it was it was a good experience. Uh, worked with a guy named Al Brown, who had been a long time assistant. He'd been on the men's side and on the women's side. So and Al taught me a lot of a lot of things. He'd been around the game for a long time, and so it was a good learning experience. Plus, I got a chance to be around the men's program, so I could pick their brains and get some of their practices. So. Uh, I mean, I had a great time. I learned a lot, and I think I got better as a as a as a coach. So obviously, you kept in touch with Coach K during those years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, because we see each other in the halls, or I, you know, I try to get my practice, you know, uh, once a week or every other week. Once when you know, once I had opportunity, and you know, because uh, I knew I, eventually I wanted to get back on the men's side, so I wanted to keep my my brain fresh and to see what they were doing and try to maybe pick up a few 
tips about what they were doing and what's relevant on the men's side. Now, when you come back and see Coach K, you have to see him in a different light because, you know, you were his, um, he was your coach as a player, but now you're on his uh, management side. You right. still can read his body language and you pretty much know the guy's personality, don't you? Certainly, certainly, yeah. And, uh, you know, Coach K was great during that process, that transition. And he, you know, he said, hey, he, he's always said, you know, if there's something I can do to help. And, and you know, when he said it, he really means it. And uh, so, uh, you know, I had a chance to stay to stay connected to the men's program and, and Coach K. And, he, you know, he would uh, give me words of encouragement. And sometimes I'd want to ask him a thing or two, you know, why are you doing this or why are you doing it this way? Uh, you know, what, what was your thought process? Uh, and, you know, so sometimes that's part of being getting better as a coach or an actor or an athlete. You got to understand the process and what goes into making great decisions within that process so you have a great outcome. I imagine uh, you really come to appreciate Coach K much more in retrospect than you ever did as a player. Absolutely. Man, I tell you, to do it for, has it, has it been 40 years yet? <laughs> it's, it's, it's close to 40 years he's been head coach at Duke. Oh, yeah. And to be successful. Absolutely. The, to, he, matter of fact, when I first went to West Point, he wrote me a note. I still have it. He said, uh, work your tail off. Uh, learn as much as you can. Always learn uh, and, because I'm still learning. And at that time when he wrote that note, I was like, you know, I'm thinking you've already arrived, but he said it's better, it's harder to stay on top mm-hmm. than it is to get on top. That's true. And so, uh, you know, those words of wisdom, and I, you know, I carry those with me even to this day. How did you end up at Central, North Carolina Central University, the following year? How did that happen? You know, uh, Lavelle Monk was the head coach over there, and I knew Lavelle from, you know, back in the day. And, uh, you know, I called him actually to congratulate him. He just got the job, and I said, "Hey, man, congratulations!" And you know, if I could help, he said, "Man, man, come over and see me. Come see me." And I went over to see him, and we talked. He said, "You know, you ought to. I'm looking for a guy." And I didn't know he was looking for a coach at the time, but I just went over there, you know, talk to him, you know, talk a little basketball, catch up. And uh, he said, "Man, I'm looking for a coach." And so that's how that evolved. And again, I always wanted to get back on the men's side, and uh, so he he brought me on this to be a part of his staff. Did you feel you were uh, a little bit more prepared than when you became a head coach at Shaw? A- absolutely, absolutely. You know, when you are a rookie, anything, things go a thousand miles an hour. You know, it's like you're trying to get your, catch your breath and keep your head above water. And then the older you get, you get some experience and things slow down and you learn to manage and think and to process. And so by the time I got to NCCU, I, was, uh, I felt very comfortable in my role as a, as a coach and confident in my abilities. And so I thought I was able to help that program. So, Excellent. Well, the following year, you actually became the head coach again, right, at Oshawa Powers, yep. National yep. Basketball League of Canada, located in Toronto. Now, you talk about a transition. You go from <laughs> Durham, where right. Central is located, you go to Ottawa. That's had to be some shock, culture shock and otherwise, right? You know, actually, culturally, it wasn't bad. What was bad was the weather. It was cold, you know. I'm a country North Carolina boy. I'm used to, you know, if it snows, that means you go home. Uh, so uh, 
but it, it was a really good experience. I was, uh, I had gone to Toronto to do a couple of camps and I met a guy who did some work with the Raptors, but he had something to do with this new league. And the team was, actually, I wasn't even there when they started playing. I was in the States. And I'd taken my daughter down to Florida. We went to spend a couple of days doing some uh, water parks. And the guy I met while I was there called me. He said, hey, man, we're looking. I think we're going to fire our coach. We're looking for a new coach. Would you be interested? So one thing led to another, led to another. And I ended up in Toronto, man. It was a, it was a good experience. Uh, you know, I had glad I had a chance, one, to live in a different country where English was the main language. I didn't have to learn a new language. People were amazingly friendly. It's a beautiful city, very culturally diverse. Food was amazing. It's beautiful and clean. I mean, it was a lot of great things about Toronto. Having had a phenomenal time there. So, uh, you know, it's I've, I've gotten to see and do a lot of pretty cool things because of basketball. So it was good to, good to be a head coach in Canada, huh? Yeah, yeah. You know what, man? And we had a – we turned it around. We really we – had, we had some talent. I went to watch them play before I took the job. And I thought, they're not very disciplined. I was like, God, they're talented, but they don't have much. Deal. They take bad shots and turn the ball over too much. I said, man, if we could just tighten that up, this could be a good team. And uh, I get the job and, you know, I, and I, I'm not a – I don't have a thousand rules, but I ha- I'm, I'm a stickler for about four or five. And I'm, because I think if we do those things that we put ourselves in position to have a chance to win. And I, and I told a couple of my guys, I say, listen, if you listen to me, I guarantee you're going to have, you're going to finish this season really well. One of them was a guy named Brandon. What's Brandon's last name? I can't think of it right now. And he was a really good player. Came out of a D2 school out of Georgia. And uh, he, I said, man, I said, if you take great shots, and I said, we're going to talk about this because I said, no, you don't learn it in one game or one practice. But I said, I said, you know, I'm giving you the freedom to do what you're good at. I said, I need you to eliminate some of these things you're not good at. Plus, I need you to rebound. Man, that dude went on the streak, and he he tore it up through the rest of the season. He went to made the All-Star game and went down to, became the MVP in the All-Star game and dropped 39 in the game. So I said, hey, so I said, man, it's, I said, you know, I'm not a great coach. I just put you in position to do what you do well. And, and I, anyway, we, we missed the game. We missed the playoffs by one game, but we had a, ended up having a really good season. So you put yourself on the map there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was fun. I had, I had great kids, young men. And uh, so they made it fun and they listened. And then we were successful. So, you know, if we didn't have success, they might look at me a little differently. But so, and they and they were fun to hang around, and and they, you know, they they were just good. They were they were quality people. Excellent. Now, were there any philosophical differences in terms of how Canadian uh, basketball approaches it versus American side? Not really, not really. Now, in that league, no. But just in general, hockey is the big sport in Toronto. Well, in Canada in general, in general. So, but there's a huge groundswell of basketball talent in Canada. So you, you look at it now, they're, they're, they're professionals in the NBA. Our college ranks are full of Canadian kids. 
and a lot of kids come down here to play and even to high school. So this it's a it's a growing, really quickly evolving sport in in Canada because Canadians love basketball, and so that's what made it fun. Is we had uh, you know pretty good support and and our fans really were passionate about the game. So up to this point, uh, would it be accurate to say that this was the best experience as head coach? Um, I'd say so. Yeah. Um, one, and I, it's just terrible. Recruiting is such a monster at the collegiate level. It eats up your time. It's all consuming. It never ends. And on the professional level, you don't have to recruit. I mean, you have to recruit, but you, you know, you can, you can sign guys. You don't have to go out and do the whole wine and dine thing. But it was fun because, uh, you know, we, we ended up having to, we, we ended up trading a couple guys and we bring in some new blood and man, it, our chemistry was great. And, uh, and that made it fun. Cause I said, listen, I want to sit down and watch. I said, I don't want to get up and yell and scream. I don't want to do all that. I said, now if we do what we, we're good at, you'll have fun and I'll have fun. And, and, and we, we were able to accomplish that. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. What separates your coaching style from Coach K's? Hmm. I am probably a little more laid back. Um, I am. I'm going to. I, I'm going to give them, and I, I got this from Coach K. But I'm going to give you some concepts, and this is how we're going to play. You got. We got to figure out how you make you successful in what we're doing. Uh, but I'm just. I'm. I want to. I want to sit down during the game and be an observer. I don't want to talk a lot because when I'm talking, I'm missing something that's going on. And Coach K is really intense. Uh, I'm not as intense. Sounds good, man. All right. So uh, after that, you uh, most recently you were coach with Raleigh Firebirds, correct? Right. Correct. Uh, um, then Raleigh Firebirds were part of NAPB, which is North America Premier Basketball. Tell us what that's about. Actually, what's happened is, if you look historically, there have been a lot over the last 40 or 50 years, there have been a lot of professional attempt, attempts to put together a nice professional league outside of the NBA. Uh, and so that's what this league is attempting to do. They've changed the name to the TBL. And I've actually, I think I just saw something on Facebook. I think last year we had 10 teams. I think we're up to 16 now, and they're looking at adding four to six more. So evidently they're doing a lot of work during the pandemic. But uh, so it was, it was, it's a really good league, man. It's uh, exciting style of basketball again. My first year, uh, we were one game from the – finals we lost on the road in overtime but we had a really good year again and really good players quality people it was fun i wanted them to be able to enjoy what they do i don't want to put a whole lot of limitations on you i want you to be free within certain restrictions and uh, we, we were able to be successful and uh, so it was, and it was really fun had a great time you looking forward to going back into coaching anytime yeah i'm, I'm still the coach of the firebirds um, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this pandemic, but 
uh, you know, I, I love, I still love coach. I still working with love working with young people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever get it out of your blood. You come up to Raleigh often? You know what? I, I used to, in fact, I'm, I'm leaving to go to Raleigh when we, when we done, I've got, uh, I, I had a house there. I just sold it. So I've got to go pack up a few things and the movers are coming tomorrow. So, but I don't get there as much as I used to. So are you going to move to Raleigh or what? what's the story? No, no, I'm moving from Raleigh to Fayetteville. Oh, you're in Raleigh now? No, I'm in Fayetteville now, but I got to go to Raleigh. Okay. Close out, you know, close out all that stuff, make sure the house is clean. And, I see. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, yeah, you have a daughter? I do. So tell us about your daughter. How old is she? Man, she is 28. I can't believe I've got a child that old. Uh, she's a phenomenal young lady. She, uh, she went to East Carolina undergrad, and she is – um, she's look, she's applying to go back to getting the grad school now. Uh, she wants to pursue a doctorate in occupational therapy. So I was hoping she'd get in this fall, but she didn't. And so she'll probably be in the fall of 2021. Does your daughter know who Robert Bricky is? Um, yes and no. You know, it's it's not something I talk, I don't talk much about. She asked me also, also, but I don't I don't talk hoops with her like that about my past. Okay. Hey man, down in Fayetteville, what's the what's your favorite Korean restaurant? <laughs> you know what, man? There's one right on the boulevard. Oh, it's um it's actually it's actually Thai. Um and I cannot think of the name of it, but it's really good. They used to have one called a Thai room and it closed. I don't know why it was exceptional. Uh, so I, I, I eat there because they're close and I eat there fairly frequently, but I love, I love Asian food. You got good taste. I was down in favor the other day and, uh, there's a great ramen house. If you okay. have Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's right next to, uh, it's on, uh, McPherson Church, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. I've I'm, eaten talking about the one on, I'm talking about the one on Owens road in okay. Bordeaux. Uh, shopping center, Bordeaux. Oh, I haven't been, I haven't been over there. And that's, oh, man, I was there Sunday. It was excellent. excellent. Really? Yeah, yeah. And what, were you doing, what were you doing in Fayetteville? Well, I was coming back on my way back from uh, Augusta, Georgia. Okay. Home, and uh, I had okay. to stop by and, uh, you know, I was hungry and that sort of thing. And right. I got to get my Asian food fixed in, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So I, uh, but, but next time you stop through, call me. I'll treat you to lunch. Oh, you got that. I'm going to get that in writing, man. <laughs> listen, man, let's give out your contact information again. Okay. Uh, uh, email robert.bricky at lpl.com. Robert.bricky at lpl.com. No, phone number 919-896-2389. 919-896-2389. Robert, I want to thank you for opening up your life with us. And this concludes our Fry It Up podcast with Robert Bricky. And this program is about individuals overcoming life situations to live the life they are destined. Why? Because they work for it. So be encouraged by Robert Bricky's life's journey and keep on trucking because tomorrow is a gift and an opportunity to make it happen in your life. I'm Augustus Cho with the next chapter over and out. <laughs>